This is the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word that reveals to us that you are God of love. And Lord, we long to know your love more deeply and, and to be people who are marked by your love. And so we pray that as we read this passage together that you would lead us to our Savior, that we would fix our eyes on him and that he, his mind and heart and, and words would be formed in us. And so we look to you and ask for the, the power and leading of your Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we are talking about the centrality of love in the Christian view of the world. And uh, the Christian view of love is, is very different than the world's understanding of love. The world talks a lot about love. And so I want to tell you when I first learned kind of that the Christian understanding of love and the world's understanding of love are different. And I, I've shared with you as a church that I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. Um, my, uh, I was a troubled teen. I was sent away to a behavioral modification program on the island of Western Samoa. I was there for a year and a half when I was 16 and 17 years old. It was kind of a lockdown facility. And this facility was mainly on three beaches in Western Samoa. And each beach had about 100 boys on it. And the beach that I lived on was called Sinalele, and that's where I became a Christian on Sinalele. And on Sinalele, there were uh, two other Christians that I met there, and they taught me to pray, and, and we, they explained the Bible to me. And, and uh, the three of us decided, you know what, we, we weren't allowed to go to church. We're like, we should start a church service on Sunday mornings on the, you know, at this beach in, the, in one of the huts. And so we had like 70 kids who were coming to our church service. And I had never read the Bible, and I was trying to explain to people, you know, who Jesus was. And so we were so excited about this gathering. So one Sunday, I was on one of the other beaches, and it turned out they had a spiritual gathering on Sunday morning as well. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to go visit this spiritual gathering, and I go share the gospel with them. And so I came into this, this gathering, and they also had about 70 people, and it was in a a hut about the size of this room. These 70 kids were in a circle. And I remember at the front of the hut, there was this one kid who was, he was kind of bigger, and 
I remember him sitting on a throne, and it was probably just a plastic chair, but that's how my memory of it was that he was sitting on a throne, and he had this skinny kid next to him that was like his minion that was kind of next to him, and he would point on people and let them stand up and share their spiritual ideas, and I think the minion, I remember him saying, when you put your hands on a tree, you receive energy from the tree, and it comes into you, so it was a lot of stuff like that, and so I said, you know, well, I'd like to share my spiritual thoughts, you know, I've uh, come to know the love of Jesus Christ. He's radically changed my life. And I read the scriptures. The scriptures r- tell us the truth about who God is. And I'm in the middle of saying this, and he cuts me off, the guy on the throne. He's like, oh, we're not into that stuff here. Next person. And so when we leave the, uh, the gathering, he comes up to me. He says, Nate, he was kind of talking down to me. He's 17 years old. And he's like, Nate, let me, I've read through the whole Bible from the beginning to the end, which I doubt he had. But he said, I've read through the whole Bible, and I can tell you, you can summarize the whole thing with just one word, love. Now, I was a brand new Christian. I had not read through the Bible from the beginning to the end. Um, but I knew the moment he said that there was something evil about what he was saying. And part of the reason it was evil is because what he said was true. The Bible is all about love. It's revealing the God who is love. And Jesus says all of God's commandments are summarized by loving God and loving one another. But he says the whole Bible is about love and that when I was telling a group of people about the greatest love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, he cut me off. He clearly has a very different understanding of love than the Bible does. And, uh, And I think that spirit is very similar to a place like Bellingham. You know, if you drive around Bellingham, you'll see all kinds of signs that say things like, love is love, which translation means you should be able to have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. That's what our understanding of love is. And, you know, the irony is Jesus in this passage quotes uh, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Just Jesus did not make that up. That came from, well, he did in that he's God, but it was first written by Moses in, in Leviticus 19. And do you know what Leviticus, Leviticus 18 is about? It's a whole chapter about sexual ethics and how God expects us to handle our sexual lives. And then you have Leviticus 19, love your neighbors yourself. You know what Leviticus 20 is about? A repeat of Leviticus 18 about God's sexual ethics and about how we honor him with our bodies sexually. When the world says it's all about love, and we say it's all about love, we are not saying the same thing. And so love is a complicated topic. And so this morning, I want to give us a vision for a Christian understanding of love from these great words from our Savior. And Uh, In particular, I want to point out three simple truths that we learned from this passage. This is what they are. That God is love. That's a quote from the Bible. The Bible says God is love. Humans were made to share in God's love. And third, that human society is held together by love. So three things that we learned from this passage. That God himself is love. That humans were made then to share in the love that God is. And that third, human society is meant to be held together by love. And I think the Bible's vision of love, it's so much richer, it's so much more beautiful and deep than the self-indulgent kind of love that our world is constantly talking about. And so our theme today is the love of God. And our first point is this, God is love. The God of the Bible is the God who is 
love. And basically the problem with the world's definition of love is that we assume that we know what love is. But you'll notice how this passage begins in verse 28, how it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Now this guy in the story so far, he's kind of a refreshing change because up to this point, everyone's trying to trap Jesus and get in debates with him and prove Jesus wrong. And, uh, and finally, here's someone with an open mind. This scribe is like, you know, Jesus has some pretty solid answers to the questions they're asking. And at the end of this passage, Jesus says that this man is not far from the kingdom of God. So he's starting, things are starting to click for him. And there are a couple things that we learn from Jesus' response to him, okay? The first thing that we learn is that the God who is love is not naturally understood by us. The God who is love is not naturally understood by us. And that's why actually the first command in this verse isn't actually love, but what's the first command that Jesus says there in verse 29? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel. The first commandment is you've got to listen. You've got to hear. You've got to know who God is. You have something that you need to hear first before you can do anything. You need to hear about the God who is love before you start loving. And not just once. You need to hear about him over and over again. And actually, the saying that Jesus says here is called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is, it was a saying that the Jews would say over and over again. It was this repeated prayer. And why did they need to repeat, repeat it over and over again? Because it's not, under, it's not natural for us to understand how the love of God works. And so that would be my basic assumption coming into a church like this with all of us. Is that we're a group of people who by nature do not understand how love works. All of us to varying degrees, it is not natural to believe that God is good and really wants good things for us. And some of you would say, yeah, I see that about myself. It's hard for me to receive love from people, to kind of like open myself to them, to trust them. It's, it's hard for me to receive love from God, to really believe that God might actually love me. And it's hard for me to show love and to show affection or care for other people. And uh, maybe you grew up in a home where there was no love. You know, you didn't experience love from your parents. It was never spoken of. It was never expressed. It was never in to you were never told to love anyone, that this is how you're supposed to live. And, uh, and I had a, a seminary professor who told me that when he was growing up, his father told him probably 10,000 times, you are good for nothing and you will amount to nothing in your life. That's what he'd been hearing for 18 years of his formation over and over again. And so if that's your formation happening, it's not going to be natural to know how to love and trust God or how to love and to trust other people. And so we are born with a sin nature that by nature doesn't trust God, and then we're born into a world that doesn't know how to love. And so you have to think, how many times are we going to have to hear again about God's love for it to really sink into us? Well, we're going to have to hear it week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. I need to be reminded over and over again because my nature doesn't like instinctually know this. And so that's why the God who is love says his most important thing to us is we need to appear before him every week here. You know, when you hear the assurance of pardon, what Pastor Matt just declared over all of us, your father loves you. 
Your God says to you, I am your God and you are my people and I love you. We need to hear that over and over again. We can't skip that at any point in our life. So first, the God who is love is not naturally understood by us. And maybe part of that reason is the second thing about the God of, uh, the God of love is that the God who is love is mysterious. The God of love is mysterious. He's beyond our comprehension. And I think it's interesting that this man asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And then Jesus responds with basically a statement. Hear this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is a pattern that happens throughout the Bible is that before God tells us what to do, he always tells us a statement about himself and what he's done. It's called the indicative comes before the imperative. The indicative is a statement. This is who God is and this is what God's done. And it's in light of that that God then tells you this is how then you should live is, is the imperative. And these are the commands for you. And the indicative for Jesus here is that the Lord himself is one. The oneness of God is the thing that Jesus says he needs to hear. And why do we need to hear about the oneness of God? Well, because it's mysterious that God is also three. The most important doctrine in the Christian life is that there is one God who is, you know, exists unchangeably through all eternity, who exists in three equal persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so how can there be one God in three persons? Well, that's mysterious to us. It's beyond our comprehension. But God being love doesn't mean that God is some energy in the universe that we tap in. He's not warm fuzzies. He's not just the feeling of love. That's not what it is. When God is love, it means that he is persons who know and dwell with one another. They esteem one another. God himself is a community. And so, you know, C.S. Lewis points this out in Mere Christianity where he says, that it, to say that God is love by definition means he must be more than one person because you need more than one person to have love. And this is how the God of the Bible is different than, you know, take for example, uh, the uh, Allah, the, uh, the dark and lonely God of Islam. Allah existed in eternity past, according to Islam, as an isolated personality alone. And he needed to make a world to become merciful. And it's, there's something that is almost frightening and cold of thinking of eternity past with an isolated, lonely God. That is not the God of the Bible. He's full of life like a dance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a family, and then he creates a world to be brought into the family that has always existed in all eternity. And so... Uh, and so the deep truth behind existence itself is the mysterious God who is love. As Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus begins his treatment of love with two important facts about the God who is love. First, he's not naturally understood by us, so we need to hear over and over again about who he is. And second, that he's a mysterious three persons who are also one, and we can't comprehend this truth. But, the universe uh, but before the universe itself, there was a God who was a family of love. And so once we know that, we can come to understand a second point that we see in this passage is that humans were made to share in God's love. So God is love, and humans were made to share in the love that is God. And so Jesus says, the Lord our God is one, uh, and uh, hinting at, at how from all eternity God has existed in a community of love. But then he goes on and says in verse 30, And you, 
shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your minds and with all your strength. And what's amazing to me about this verse is it tells us what does God most want from us. And maybe, maybe you've thought of that question or had a sense. What does God most want from you? Does he want you to work and labor? Does he want to make sure that you kept all the rules well? Does he want, you know, praise and worship and adoration from you? Yes, he does want all those things, but those are all because of most deeply what he wants from you is your love. God, God loves you, and he wants your love back. Is what, that's what he wants the, his relationship with you to be like, a loving relationship where he loves you and you love him. And I want to point out how differently in this love Jesus views love than the world does. So when the world talks about love, what, you know, love is largely feelings and emotions and sexual desire. And, of course, all those things are wrapped into God's vision of love. I'm not saying that those are excluded. But when Jesus talks about love here, there's four things that he highlights. Okay, the first is he says that we are to love, uh, love God with all of our heart. And I know for most of us, when we hear about loving God with our heart, we think that the heart is our emotions. But in the Bible, your heart is really the center of your will. It's like your decision-making. This is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm wanting. This is what I'm desiring. This is what I'm, you know, aiming my life at. And, uh, and so um, to love God with your heart means to align your will with his will. It's like when we pray, not my will, but your will be done. Or as Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. And you might not think obedience sounds like love, but to Jesus, if you obey him, it means you trust him, and it means you value the things that he values, and it means that you respect him. That's all what it means to love from the heart. Okay, so first it says love, the, love God with all your heart, and then it says love God with all your soul. Your soul is basically the animating power of your body. It's like the energy that lives and determines how you move and what you do and how you spend, uh, uh, spend your life and spend your days. So love uh, takes the energy that we have and directs it towards God, what we work on and how we worship. And then third, Jesus says, you're to love the Lord your God with all of your minds. This is one thing I love about the Christian faith is Christian love is intellectual. It's not just emotional. It's not just sexual passions. It reasons through theology. It, there's moral reasoning. You know, when you live in the world, part of the love for God is to think his thoughts after him. And love reads the Bible. Love gets together with other people and says, we need to discern what's right and what's wrong. We need to talk about it together. And that whole experience of reasoning, frankly, with one another is part of what God himself does. You know, the Father and the Son, they speak to one another about their purposes in the world, and we're joined into that whole conversation and discussion, okay? So we love the Lord our God with our heart, which is our will, our, our soul, which is the animating power of our body. Third, love with all of our mind and our intellect. And then fourth, he says, to love the Lord with all of our strength, which, of course, is talking about our bodies. And the Bible sees love as an action that you do. It's not just good intentions. It's not just warm feelings towards someone. And, of course, that's true about God himself, that God did not just love us, you know, sit in heaven and have good feelings about us in heaven. He said, you know, I'm going to love these people. I just, I just think they're great. He didn't do that. He, what did he do? He took on a body 
He, to come share in our frailty with us, he was born into a poor family. He went and touched people and talked to them. He befriended people. He discipled people. And then he went to the cross and died in an event in history for our sins on the cross. And then his body was raised from the dead. So it's all a physical event. And that's what our love should be as well, is using our bodies to serve other people. And what all of this is saying is the Lord intends us to love him with our whole person. And some of you might hear that and you say, I, we, we all fall short of that. I mean, with my whole will aligned with his, all of my energy directed towards him, all of my intellect reasoning towards how to honor him, and you, my body, everything I do, be used, I fall so short of that. And, and of course, this is a description of Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who perfectly lives this love. But, you know, another way uh, to think of this command that I think, you know, whenever the Bible gives us a command, on the one hand, it's God saying to us, this is what you need to do. He's telling you, you should love God. It's also God painting a picture of the kind of person he's intending to make us into. And that's a tremendously hopeful thing, that if you become a Christian, you have to understand what you're signing up for. Is God is going to do whatever it takes to make you a kind of person that knows how to love to love him, and to love other people. And that may be hard things that you go through, but whatever is unnatural for us about love, he says, we're going to undo that, and I'm going to bring you into my life, and I'm going to shape you so that every part of your being is marked by love, and that's who you're going to be into eternity. And so human beings were made to share in God's love. The triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created us to come into the great dance of love that they have had from all eternity. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that the average person in Bellingham might say, yeah, okay, love is all you need. Love is, love is what life is about. But really what the average person in Bellingham is doing is skipping this first command. The first command is you love God first, and then you learn to love other people. You, and, and we want to skip that, and then I'm just going to define love how I want it, and I'm going to go love people that way. And Jesus says it doesn't work like that. The first command is you need to learn to love God, learn to receive his love, and then love him back and honor him. And then once you've done that, you are ready to now go truly love other people. And so when humans have worshipped God... It has a profound transformative effect. And so that leads to the last point that we're looking at. So we see in God is love. Humans were made to share in God's love. But the third point is human society is held together by love. That's the way that God made the world is that human society is held together by love. And verse 31, in verse 31, Jesus says the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus puts an emphasis on loving our neighbors. And you might say, well, who are our neighbors? Well, the Bible tells us that your neighbor is anyone that God in his providence brings into your sphere of, you know, influence. Someone that's around you. And uh, Dallas Willard was a spiritual writer who, who died recently, a few years ago, and I, I went to a conference where he was speaking, and one of the things he said that one of his practices that was that every morning when he woke up and he prayed, he would tell the Lord, I'm going to receive whoever you bring into my life today as someone that was sent by you. 
It doesn't matter how hostile they are or angry they are or if they're sinning against me. I'm going to say they were brought by you for me to love them. And, And so whoever is in our life is who God has placed there for us to love. And I mentioned uh, also at the beginning of the, uh, of the sermon that, you know, Jesus in this passage is quoting the book of Leviticus. And, and I've been uh, reading through Leviticus in my own devotions. Actually, just yesterday I re- read Leviticus 19, where this passage comes from. And Leviticus 19 is a part of the law that the Israelite people, it's this legislation that God had given to this society and say, this is how you're going to live together. And it's all kinds of code of conduct of, you know, you can't steal, you can't murder, similar laws like what we would have in, in our society. And, um, and so it's interesting that the law of love is woven into the laws of society. Let me just read to you some of the broader verses from Leviticus 19. This is verses 17 and 18. This is what it says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And I find this fascinating that the legal code that the Lord gives to this society includes you should not have grudges against each other. You know, you need to reason frankly with one another. You got problems, go talk it out. He's like, I want you to go face one another and talk about what the problems are. Get them on the table and forgive each other and get to the root of it. And so that's actually how a society is held together. And so when Christianity informs a society, it makes love this kind of frankness and honesty with people, taking them seriously, looking them in the eyes, sitting down with them. The the whole manners of civility and the way that we relate to one another, that's what Christianity brings into a society. And these manners of loving people are like the invisible pillars that are holding up a society. And we are living in a moment right now where all of the, the civility of, of love in it, that holds a society together is being stripped away and torn down. And it's going to be harder and harder for our society to be held together without this norm of love. And so human society is held together by love. And actually, uh, John Calvin saw this command as the main glue that held together human society. And, and before uh, Calvin's day, you know, most people thought that what held a society together was the great chain of being. That basically means all people were born into different classes. You know, you got the king and the nobles and the merchants and artisans and the, you know, the serfs. And the way society was held together is you did your role right, and then society doesn't fall apart. And and Calvin said, it's not this hierarchy that's the glue of society, but it is loving your neighbor. And the main way that you love your neighbor is through your work, the work that you do. And that might be surprising to you, but it's true for most of us that the most activity that we will do of actually loving neighbors, using our skills, using our intelligence, using our energy, all the things that Jesus described out, when will we use all that to love neighbors the most? Is in our work, the most hours. So if you're a teacher, if you were a doctor or a nurse, if you were in ministry, if you were a mother, if you were a homemaker, if you were a business owner or a manager, if you were a firefighter, Work is how we use our gifts to bless our neighbors. 
And that how important for us to realize that all that work we do is spiritual activity that we are doing to honor the Lord. And it's that when people do their work for the glory of God and for the love of their neighbors, a society is held together. This is the vision of human society that Jesus gives us in these few verses. And so we, when we come back to the kid who mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, who said, you don't need to read the Bible because it's just summed up with one word, love. What he's actually doing is emptying love of its richness. Love is not just a feeling. It is the nature of the mysterious triune God who before the creation of the universe was a loving family, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that love is contrary to our sinful nature. And so we have to hear about it over and over again. It's the highest priority in our life that we would learn to become people of love. But it is a love that draws us in, our whole being, our will, our energy, our intellect, our bodies. And it is not just a love that we do as individuals. It becomes the very glue that holds all of human society together. And so may we ever be a community that asks the Lord to lead us deeper and deeper into the mystery of his great and eternal love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what good news this is that when we open the scriptures, the word of truth, we find that the deep reality behind all things is a God who is love. And Lord, you see in us both how unnatural your love is for us and yet how deeply we hunger for it. And so we pray that as you speak the gospel to us, the assurance of your love, your Holy Spirit would take that gospel and it would give us hearts that love you with our whole being and that we would love each person that you bring into our sphere of influence, that you would give us the power to be people of love. May we be marked by this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.